When you guys uh, saw the title at the beginning up there, did you notice what it was? <laughs> Who would cry <laughs> on Palm Sunday? Now, I know as soon as you put the word cry up on the screen, I split the room, right? There's some ladies in the room grabbing their Kleenex saying, oh boy, this is going to be a good service. I can't wait to see, and Jim. <laughs> I can't wait to see. What's going to happen today? And there's some guys in here already looking at their watch like, oh, great. I got to get back home. How long is this going <laughs> to Keith is not. <laughs> Sometimes it's confusing for us guys, right? When is it okay to cry? When is it not okay to cry? There's all these different standards out there, but got a word of relief today for the men in the room. I found the definitive source that gives us those answers. It's theartofmanliness.com. No, no, no. I know many of you will be very surprised to realize that I just recently discovered this website. <laughs> I am uh, 38, two years away from 40, so I figure I found it just in time to get ready for that midlife crisis that's supposed to hit sometime. But here's the rules according to theartofmanliness.com. If men, if men, if you've been wondering when it's okay. It's okay at the death of a loved one, the death of a beloved pet, when you first see the new life you, you and your wife created. Those are good. Uh, when you propose to the love of your life and she says yes, it's okay to cry then. At the altar when you get married. When your beloved car or truck, especially if it's your first one, gets totaled. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> visiting sites that pay tribute to those who laid down their lives for others. It's okay then. Describing a really spiritual experience. See, Jim, you're all right. See, that, that's usually what it is. And I'm with you there sometimes. All right, number nine, as an athlete, after the final game you'll ever play, it's okay at that moment. Then they give a list of movies where it's okay for guys to cry. All right, Field of Dreams, Brian's Song, Shawshank Redemption, Pride of the Yankees, Old Yeller, Iron Giant, life is beautiful. <laughs> I love that one. I almost did. We watched that with our boys last year. My son was sitting there like, right. Saving Private Ryan, Rudy, Braveheart, Dead Poets Society, Friday Night Lights, We Were Soldiers, Gladiator, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Champ, Glory, and It's a Wonderful Life. Thank goodness. All right. Now, here's the other list that you're waiting for so eagerly. When it's not okay. When your favorite sports team loses, it is not okay to cry. <laughs> yeah, I'll remember that. When those around you are looking to you as a source of calmness and strength, <laughs> to the point of irrational thinking or paralysis when you have a job to do, when you don't get your way, <laughs> when you're frustrated, and of course, in baseball because there's no crying in baseball and then they give a short list of movies where it's not okay for us to cry guys Beaches <laughs> Steel Magnolias Little Women Jerry Maguire The Notebook and Ghost from the definitive source, theartofmanliness.com. 
Now we know we've got that settled. And as we dive into a passage about Palm Sunday that we've all read many times, I want to shake off some of the dust of it. Uh, Who would cry on Palm Sunday is the question that we want to answer from our passage and then see what in the world does this have to do with us today. It's one of those passages, I think I was at Jim's missional community, I think sometimes with stuff like this, they can become like a, a picture that we buy that we love so much at the store and we put it on our wall and the first two or three times we walk past it, we just stare at it and talk about it with our loved ones. But then after you come in the house four, five, ten times, what do you do? You just kind of walk right past it. I fear that's sometimes what can happen on Palm Sunday and Easter. And I hope by viewing it through the lens of this question, we can shake off some of that dust today. Who would cry on Palm Sunday? We're going to look at Luke's account, which is kind of cool, because if you've been with us, you know that we've been going through the book of Acts, who was also written by Luke. It's actually one volume, a lot of people think, Luke-Acts. So we're going to jump back two or three decades in the history that Luke gives us from Paul's life at the end to Jesus' life. And we're going to go to that familiar passage, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. It says, He went on ahead, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem. Now, two things we're going to notice, just just before I get very far, that set Luke's account of this apart from the others. This is a spoiler alert. There's no Hosanna in Luke's account, okay? So... I'm just telling you now because some of you are going to leave disappointed. There's no Hosanna in Luke's account, all right? The other thing that makes his account unique is we don't actually see Jesus entering Jerusalem. He's only approaching. Now, we know he eventually does get to Jerusalem, but in Luke's account, he's only approaching. So here we go. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? Good question, right? That's my colt. Somebody, you go out in your driveway in the morning and somebody's... uh, in your car, which happened recently in Prescott Valley, I heard a lady found a guy sleeping in her car in the morning. Evidently, he got drunk and passed out and thought the car looked like his. She called the police. It's weird when somebody messes with your vehicle. They're messing with this guy's vehicle. Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Like, okay. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen in Jesus' ministry. Blessed is the King, they said, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I want to stop there because there's a lot that we could touch on. We're not going to touch on every aspect of this passage, but... But just a couple of things that are beautiful to me. This happened on Sunday. In chronologies of the Passion Week, as it blends with Passover, which was the festival going on at the time in Jerusalem, tell us that it was on the same day that Jesus got on this donkey and entered into Jerusalem that families were out choosing 
that spotless lamb that they would sacrifice for their Passover memorial. You, know, you remember Passover, right? They remembered uh, Moses leading them out of Egypt. And God told them, hey, sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on your doorpost. I'm going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. But if you have that blood of the lamb on your doorpost, you'll be spared. And every year they would choose a spotless lamb to have this feast. It was the same day the spotless lamb entered Jerusalem. Mount of Olives is another cool thing. It says that he was going down the Mount of Olives. And here we have him on the colt of a donkey, right? It's not a very majestic animal. But he did that on purpose because he was letting them know in no uncertain terms, I am the one you've been waiting for. Zechariah, centuries before, in 9.9 had said, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So those who had watched Jesus' ministry and knew their scriptures and had an open heart to what God was doing would start putting pieces together. He's the one we've been waiting for. But look back to that prophecy, but you know what also strikes me? This Mount of Olives reference also looks forward because when you read through the prophecies about when Jesus comes back next time, He's going to come back at the same place, the Mount of Olives. Only that time, it will not be on a lowly donkey. It will be on a white steed. It will not be preparing for a crown of thorns. He will have a crown with beautiful diadems. Listen to how it describes it in Revelation 19 the next time he comes to this same Mount of Olives. Verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <laughs> Anybody looking forward to that day? <laughs> yeah, no longer the suffering Savior the victorious king next time he comes down on that same Mount of Olives. And you've got this crowd, some of who are putting the pieces together, and they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But you've also got the religious leaders. Verse 39, their reaction. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What are they saying? They're, they're saying only God deserves those kind of words. Those words came from Psalm 118. There's a psalm looking forward to the Messiah. So the Pharisees hear them saying that to Jesus and say, tell them to stop. Jesus says to them, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now here's where I want to focus. What's his heart towards those Pharisees and others that feel like that? Did, did he have a hatred in his heart for those? 
who didn't believe? Look at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Right after in the passage, the, the Pharisees had missed who he was. He weeps over the whole city. And he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus doesn't have hatred for those who choose to reject him. He wept. He loved that city so much that, that he wept. So there's, there's our answer to the question, right? Who would cry on Palm Sunday? Jesus did cry on Palm Sunday. And we know in verse 45 that he went on to do some business at the temple. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. We all know that story and we're not gonna go into it. But you see two sides of Jesus that we all need as followers of his to be balanced. One is a broken heart for the lost. A weeping heart for those in our lives that don't yet know Jesus. And the other is a sense of justice that wants to bring right to the broken situations in our world. I talked to a guy this week who found a drug dealer in his neighborhood. And he went and confronted him head on because he saw what the guy was doing. And said, you're not going to do that in my neighborhood. You're not going to bring these people around here that I love down. We should have that sense of justice. Right? Uh, sex trafficking. We should have a sense of justice and help protect innocent children. Homeless. When we see something that we could do about it, we should do it. That's a whole other message. We should bring justice into the injustice in our world. But today, what I want to camp on is that first part. Do we have weeping hearts for those who have not yet found the hope and the grace of Jesus? This is what Jesus said when, when he described his own mission. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. You're to sit down and do an interview with Jesus and say, why'd you come? There's the shortest answer you'll ever find. To seek and to save the lost. 1 Timothy 2, check this out. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, Skip down a little bit. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants how many people? All people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Second Peter, when it comes to God's promise to return, Jesus, he says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Who would cry on Palm Sunday? Jesus did. We've God still weeps today when he looks at the lost in our world. And it leads us to the question where I'd like to land today, who are you weeping over? 
Who are you weeping over? D.L. Moody. I've talked about him before because he founded the Bible college I went to. If you don't know his story, I'd encourage you to Google it. It's a great story. He was an uneducated American from the Midwest, got saved, and God used him to turn not only this continent around, but, but England, Britain, for Jesus. He went on many crusades, and he went over to Britain one time, and there were these three highly educated clergymen who wanted to find out, why is God using this guy so powerfully? He's, he's uneducated. So he, he invited them up to his hotel room right there in the heart of the city in Britain. And he took them to the window, and they looked down over a park filled with people. And he said, what do you guys see out there? And he listened as the men talked. And they all talked about what they saw the people doing. That guy's doing this. This lady's doing this. Oh, there's that kid playing with the balloon. That guy's wearing this. They're going there. And the whole time, D.L. Moody was weeping. And they said, what do you see? And he said, I see the souls of thousands of people who have not yet found the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He wept as he looked at that, that park. They're all looking at the same thing. They, they saw something very different from each other. Do we have those kind of eyes? At the training we just went to, the MC leader trainings, Rich drove home this point in a powerful way. He said that every six seconds in North America, someone who has not yet found Jesus dies and goes into a Christless eternity. And then he just did this with us. There goes one into eternity. There goes another one. There goes another one. There goes another one. It drove home the weight of Jesus' heart and it drives us back to the same question. Who are you weeping over? Sometimes when we're on mission, uh, it can become removed from Jesus. And at that point, it can almost get very legalistic when we get focused on the task and we lose our connection with Jesus. One guy said it this way, Halim Su said, with Jesus, mission becomes worship. Without Jesus, mission becomes slavery. So some of you, even when I mentioned, who are you praying for, you started to feel the slavery, right? Like, oh man, here comes the condemnation, here comes the... That's not the idea this morning. The idea is what this guy said, with Jesus, mission becomes worship. When you look at the weeping Savior and you say, I'm not going to go out there and weep on my own. I'm going to go weep and pray and work with him, with him. And all of a sudden, mission isn't slavery, it's worship. And so I thought there's no better way to close this, this day out than with some practical application. I've asked Scott, if he would, to pass out a sheet. It's a sheet that's just got blank slots for names of people. And some of you may have already started this in your missional community. If you have and you've got that sheet in your Bible already, you can just add to that one. If you haven't started this, I'd invite you today. What we're going to ask you to do for the next five minutes as Aaron comes up and plays, is just ask God, who is it in my life that has never found the grace 
and hope of Jesus Christ. And write them down on that sheet of paper. Write them down. There's five, 10, 15 people that he brings to mind. And begin at this moment to pray for them. Pray for them. Allow your heart to be broken for them. And then tuck this away in your Bible, your purse or your wallet. Make it a way of life that you're going to begin praying for this list. I'm going to pray and then we're going to give you about five minutes to begin that journey. Father, I thank you for your son. When we see him weep, we see a glimpse into your heart of love and grace. Your love for the lost. And Father, we need that. We need to have that same broken heart. And I think if most of the people in this room are like me, we could say there are moments where we, where we feel that. And there are other moments where we just totally forget it. Remind us again, as we look at this weeping Savior, as he wept over his city that he was entering, Lord. Give us that same passion for the lost in the Quad Cities, Arizona, the United States, and the world. And specifically this morning for those we know. Bring them to mind. Let's write them down. Let's make praying for them an ongoing, daily way of life. Praying for them and then looking for opportunities to be used by you to speak the hope that you've given us in Jesus into their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.